Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 40B in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... They have not mentioned recycling at all. And we're talking about 110 Sydney Harbour bridges worth of perfectly good steel. A new report is looking to establish a decommissioning hub for fossil fuel projects in WA. But advocates are concerned. Also, there are new outbreaks of a parasitic condition in eastern Australia. And later today... I had bipolar and before I was diagnosed, I had a five-month bipolar manic episode. And during this time, I made about 300 paintings and each of the paintings kind of capture different mental states. A new comedy show shows the journey of an Australian being diagnosed bipolar. We found out more and we'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the growing climate crisis has caused heat waves around the country to get worse, impacting the most vulnerable within our community, including the disability community. Disability Advocacy Network Australia, alongside sweltering cities, are looking to shed a light on this issue and implement solutions. The Wire Zachary Probert spoke with Executive Director of Sweltering Cities, Emma Bacon, about this issue. Well, we know that heat waves are the deadliest environmental disaster and they kill more people than all other environmental disasters combined. And there's this really shocking statistic that almost 90% of the people who die in heat waves are people with a disability. So we know that in the heat waves of this summer and the more extreme, deadly heat waves of the summer driven by climate change, we're going to see really tragic deaths of people with disabilities, potentially hundreds per year in our capital cities each. Are there any solutions or proposals that should be made in order to alleviate these issues? Yeah, I think there's three really clear solutions we're asking for. And firstly, we need to look at the National Disability Insurance Scheme to make sure that considerations of protecting community members from extreme heat is right at the centre of the planning and funding decisions. Um, that's to make sure that people can rely on the NDIS to help keep them safer, help address their needs um, when it comes to extreme heat. Secondly, we need to be thinking about making people's homes safe. So we know that you know people with disabilities um, are often on a lower income and you know might not be able to afford to turn on the aircon or live in a really high energy efficiency home. Um, this is something, regardless of whether people have a disability, Living in a hot home is a huge risk. So we want to invest in solar, aircon and energy efficiency for all social and disability housing around the country. And thirdly, the last thing we want to do is we'd love to have a roundtable with Minister Shorten and other government staff to actually, you know, educate, share ideas, um, you know, share all these um, really important statistics with the minister in a roundtable. And so within that roundtable discussion, could it be discussed that it's not just infrastructure that could help alleviate these issues, but it could be other things like services? Yeah, definitely. We know that as Minister of the NDIS, Shorten is going to have a really clear view of like what his department can do to help keep people safe in the heat. So we're definitely interested in talking about what the services can do 
and especially what disability service providers can do to you know, support those organisations, those businesses to be heat aware um, and to do you know, the best job they can to keep their, safe, to keep their staff and their clients safe during heat waves. How soon do you think that these solutions could be implemented at different levels? Well, I think that, you know, when it comes to this roundtable, you know, the minister could call that for any day, you know, and the people would be really eager to participate. When it comes to updating guidelines and funding, obviously there's a process for that. But because we're looking at, you know, just updating existing regulations and existing funding, we think it can happen really quickly if the government has the will to do so. Is there anything else that you would like to see come out of this, just uh, in, in general, to um, combat the heat waves and the impact that it's having? I think something we've been looking at really closely is how the city and our suburbs and our streets become much more hostile to people with disabilities or chronic illnesses or lots of different other people who are at risk during the heat on those like extremely hot days and. By that, what I mean is, you know, if you're walking down the street and there's no shade, if you're waiting at a bus stop and there's no shelter or no seat, if you're in a really hot home in an area with lots of dark roofs that heats up the local area, you know, that is the environment becoming more hostile and more dangerous. So let's think about how we can design our cities, our suburbs, our streets to be really safe, really resilient, really livable for everyone. That's a big priority. That was Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities. Ending the story by The Wires, Zachary Probert. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs from all over Australia. A recent industry-funded study was released looking at the decommissioning of offshore oil and gas facilities in Western Australia. The report from the Centre of Decommissioning Australia assets several locations across the state to dismantle fossil fuel projects. Although this project can be seen as a way of disposing non-renewable energy producers, advocates are concerned the project fails to address issues. The Wire's Zachary Probert asked offshore fossil gas campaigner from Friends of the Air, Jeff Waters, what the report proposes. Well, the study was commissioned by the Western Australian government uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, they paid $5 million to CODA to scope a series of different uh, potential sites for a yard where we can bring these huge floating and stationary platforms that are being removed from the sea and all the pipeline onto shore and be processed and disposed of. Uh, however, uh, as has been the case with all of my uh, contacts with industry, and CODA, it must be remembered, is funded by industry, uh, they have not mentioned recycling at all. And we're talking about 110 Sydney Harbour bridges worth of perfectly good steel. The only time they mention recycling is as a uh, another form of potential disposal alongside landfill. So uh, it appears that uh, our view that industry has not calculated the value of that steel and industry has not calculated the carbon footprint of not recycling that steel. 
And what about other waste materials as a byproduct of this decommissioning project? What would happen to, say, any um, toxic radioactive waste that would happen as part of this project? Well, these things are filthy. They're full of asbestos and um, all sorts of toxins and various forms of hydrocarbons. But the one thing that's not being talked about at all in government, in industry, is the fact that there are thousands of tonnes of radioactive, hazardous radioactive waste that needs to be treated and dealt with from these platforms. And uh, that comes from an industry study that was published about a year and a half ago by the CSIRO saying that uh, as many as 1,600 tonnes of waste, radioactive waste, would need to be brought onshore safely and then stored somewhere for the rest of time. Now, that doesn't count the radioactivity that is present in all of the pipelines, thousands of kilometres of pipeline that will need to be dealt with as well. Nobody's measured how radioactive they are, but they've been pulling radioactive material along with the gas and oil out of the Earth's crust and uh, concentrating it, technically enhancing it. Uh, It uh, forms plaques in the pipelines. The radon gas breaks down into polonium and lead isotopes and they join the naturally occurring, uh, well, under the earth it's naturally occurring, uranium and thorium in forming plaques inside the pipes. So we need to assess how radioactive these pipes are and come up with a way of dealing with the, you know, almost 2,000 tonnes of uh, hazardous radioactive material that that the oil and gas industry just hasn't told us about. Are there any incentives, um, either financial or um, tax-wise, that could be included to incentivize the industry to deal with these problems? We don't think the, the industry has the capacity to honestly deal with these problems. The track record of the oil and gas industry, particularly offshore, has been abominable. They've left wells leaking for decades, methane gas. They just that they do not have a good record. So we propose we have sought from government and have made submissions to the Treasury to the budget process, uh, calling for the government to increase and extend the existing temporary levy, which they charge uh, 48 cents per barrel equivalent of gas. The entire industry to pay for the decommissioning of of one platform, we suggest that that should be extended and increased and that the government should supervise proper, world-standard, state-of-the-art recycling facilities that will have no impact on the environment, just as is done in Europe, in Norway and Turkey and Scotland and some other places where they have government-funded, world-class recycling facilities. And gosh, there's... a <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of tons of free steel to be had. From those examples that you just mentioned in Europe, um, and have they been able to see many other positive impacts come out of the decommissioning uh, projects? No, no positive impact yet. Uh, there will be positive impacts if these, uh, if the government were to, you know, increase this levy and extend the, the temporary decommissioning levy, then uh, thousands and thousands of jobs at various sites around Australia would be created. So there's a massive new industry to be had, but at the moment, uh, the uh, oil and and gas sector has certainly not proven 
that they're capable of uh, dealing with this in a in an environmentally sustainable manner. That was Jeff Waters from Friends of the Earth speaking with the Wires, Zachary Probert. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs and community, and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Terry on Tubob Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. With summer and hot temperatures across Australia, outbreaks of cryptosporidiosis have increased across Queensland and New South Wales. The condition comes from drinking contaminated water from natural sources such as creeks, and it's resistant to chlorine, spreading it across public swimming pools. Some of the symptoms of cryptosporidiosis are diarrhea, vomiting, and abdominal discomfort. I asked Associate Professor and Gastroenterologist at Western Sydney University, Vincent Ho, what's cryptosporidiosis and how someone can get infected. So cryptosporidiosis is a disease which is caused by a particular parasite, and that parasite is known as cryptosporidium. Now, what happens is that this particular parasite, when you uh, ingest it, it actually goes all the way to the small bowel and it damages the small bowel and can lead to diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, fever, and abdominal discomfort. So it's parasitic uh, infection, and it's a condition uh, that can affect a lot of people. You just mentioned a little bit of the symptoms that um, cryptosporidiosis can get on humans. How long does it take for, for someone to get cured on this? Yeah, so look, most people will get symptoms anywhere from one to 12 days after being infected. So, um, and when they do get infected, usually all the symptoms resolve within, within about two weeks. But it can last a bit longer if you've got a more weakened immune system. Now, there have been outbreaks across Australia of cryptosporidiosis. Should we be worried about it? It's very interesting that you mention that because there have indeed been some uh, significant outbreaks. For example, in Queensland, there have been more than 700 cases of cryptosporidiosis um, in January, which is extremely you know, high in terms of numbers. And this is actually very, very significant and, and very notable as to the increase in the incidence of this cryptosporidiosis. So in regards to the, as to why this may be occurring, we do know that cryptosporidiosis Uh, tends to be contracted in contaminated foods and water. And one of the things that's been happening, at least in early summer, is there's been a lot of people swimming pools and natural water catchments as well. And we think that's, that could be one of the ways in which this cryptosporidiosis is uh, spread. So what can we do to minimize the risk of cryptosporidiosis? Well, You know, contrary to popular belief, the chlorine doesn't kill off all microbes in a swimming pool. And we know that these cryptosporidiosis, they often get released in these little spores called oocysts. So they're not killed by chlorine at normal concentrations in swimming pools. And that's quite relevant. So we know then if that is the case, that um, we should be very careful about swimming. Well, with swimming pools, what I would emphasize is that if you're someone who has had diarrhea, you really shouldn't be going to a swimming pool for at least two weeks after that's cleared. That's a really important point. We also know that often these particular cysts, when they reach natural bodies of water like beaches and rivers, it can actually be, you know, that after heavy rain, 
often we can get a lot of this runoff, you know, from what we call surface runoff, and it gets to beaches, it gets to rivers, it gets to lakes. And that's why we recommend people avoid swimming in those natural waters, certainly rivers and creeks, for at least three days after heavy rain. And probably you shouldn't even go to a beach like one day after heavy rain is recommended. Okay. And is there any treatment to treat this condition? Yes. Okay, so if you, most of the time, you'll be fine. As I said, if you don't have a weakened immune system, most of the time you'll be okay and you can recover uneventfully with just, you know, um, oral rehydration, plenty of fluids. In some rare instances, if you've got a weakened, uh, what we call immunocompromised system, then you may require particular anti-parasitic drugs. So there are some specific medications that may be needed if you're someone who's very susceptible to this cryptosporidiosis. I would just encourage your listeners to, to just be uh, mindful about um, getting diarrhea, I guess, during the, during the summer period. Um, certainly be, you know, I would encourage the, the safe precautions like thorough, you know, hand washing, of course, um, particularly um, after going to the bathroom and certainly before preparing food. That, that's really important. And I think, you know, you, you as sensible precautions, you, you want to avoid sharing, touching, preparing food with from other people um, for at least 48 hours after diarrhea has resolved. So sensible, sensible precautions. That was Associate Professor at Western Sydney University, Vincent Hall. Comedy show and art exhibition at the Adelaide Fringe will kick off raising awareness of bipolar. According to the Department of Health, one in 50 Australians will experience a bipolar disorder each year. After being diagnosed with bipolar, comedian Sam Kisijukian decided to showcase a comedy show and an art exhibition about his journey with the condition and his diagnosis. I started asking Sam to explain more about the show. Well, uh, it's at immersive light and art in light square and what they have is a 25 meter led screen that wraps around 270 degrees and so the idea is that the audience will sit like amongst this screen and i use the screen to display visual art and i do a stand-up comedy show where i move around and the screens act like a slideshow of um, art that I've made. And so the, the story that I'm telling in the show is I have bipolar and before I was diagnosed, I had a five-month bipolar manic episode. And during this time, I made about 300 paintings. And each of the paintings kind of capture different mental states that I was going through unknowingly. And so in the show, I show these artworks and things that I was doing at the time to kind of communicate visually the different mental states that I was uh, experiencing and how I reflect back on it now that I have a diagnosis. So that's the core of the show. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So well done. Sam, in your experience, what are some of the misconceptions around bipolar? Well, I think it's mostly that people that don't understand that it's, it's a lot to do with anxiety and depression specifically. Besides, I think people know the, the manic 
episodes, but I think sometimes people just get very intimidated because they don't understand and they never know if you're dealing with someone in an upstate or a downstate or instability. So I think like that's probably what I try and do in the show is show a lot of the strengths that can be experienced with someone with bipolar. And I feel like you know, art is a really lucky platform for me because I think that somewhat people have the strength with bipolar is their ability to creatively problem solve. So I, I kind of showcase that in the show. Now, you mentioned that on top of having this comedy show uh, speaking about uh, bipolar, you have an art gallery and you explain a little bit to us on what that was about. What do you expect the audience to learn from both events? You know, I think there's a lot of information about the negative sides of people with lived experience of mental illness. And you know, part of the goals and breaking down the stigma is showing, you know, because people will learn visually and some people learn verbally. And so in the show, because I use visual communication and verbal communication, I think it gives a better understanding of the more ineffable states of mania and depression. And so people can kind of draw their own conclusions, whether they have lived experience of mental illness or not. So the response I have from a lot of people is, People with lived experience of mental illness and bipolar find it both cathartic and they feel like it's an accurate representation. I've had a lot of psychiatrists come to the show and say it's um, you know, one of the best accounts and destigmatizing works of uh, bipolar. So th that was, in a way, my initial intention, but it's developed a lot from there. So it's not a lecture per se. Like I'm not trying to tell people what bipolar is like, because a lot of people that have manic episodes in bipolar don't have the ability to necessarily recount a lot of their experience because their memory is affected. And so I'm very lucky in that I document it every day visually. And so I can talk with people and compare what I was thinking at the time to um, now reflecting back on it. So I think in a way, like an art experience, and the same as with the paintings, is it's not telling you what to think. It's giving you the opportunity to access that information and draw the conclusions that you want. So what would you like to say to people who are experiencing bipolar about taking care of themselves with this, with this condition? I can't speak for other people, but in my case, like a big breakthrough was realizing the connection of mania and depression and that stability has been fleeting for my whole life. And now that I have the diagnosis, I was worried that the label of bipolar was going to define me and it hasn't been the case because I still see the world from my viewpoint. But now in when I'm unsure, I can have this dual lens where I look at a situation from the diagnostic lens of bipolar and I can think, okay, what's the best thing to do? So for example, I'm trying to avoid moving into depression and I'm trying to avoid moving into mania, but they're very connected. So for example, if I get a little bit manic, then the longer I stay in that mania, the longer the depression state will be afterwards. Likewise, if I'm in a depressive state, I'm more likely to do behaviors that trigger a manic episode because when I'm depressed and I can't function, I just want to do things and I can't. So I start not sleeping because it makes me more manic, but it actually pulls me out of the depressive state. The depressive state is the one that's unbearable. The, the manic state, in a way, is fun and exciting and you can get a lot done But once you're in the manic state, it triggers the depressive state. So for me now, it's everything, the way I look at the world is about energy consumption. So I know what are the things that are going to make me manic and try and avoid them, making sure I get enough sleep. And because of that, I won't move into as long depressive cycles, which means I don't bounce up into the manic cycle. So I've been more stable than ever. And so I think it's just the awareness that I have bipolar and that I have to you know, very consciously 
understand how I move through the world. And it's not always the same as other people, and I just have to remember that. So I'm not pressured socially into staying out late or drinking um, and just taking time out. That was comedian Sam Kisijukian. And for more information about his show Museum of Modernia, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.